All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the first broadcast of the new year. It's uh, the 5th of January, 2021. And again, I want to wish all of you a happy 2021 as we say good riddance to 2020, which is by some measures uh, one of the more difficult years that we've had uh, in recent times. Anyway, uh, we'll see what lies ahead, and uh, we're going to be talking to our guests about that today. Uh, I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel, and also want to invite you to keep sending along your questions, comments, whatever they may be, to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com, and we also want to thank our sponsors, because without them, there would be no show. NV Gold, Cassier Gold Corp, El Oro Resources, which is a new one, and we'll be talking to Quentin Henning about El Oro and its prospects in a few minutes from now. Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp, Lion One Metals, and SK Mining Corp are the sponsors who make this show possible. Our title today's show, Dealing with the New Great Depression. Jim Rickards, Dr. Quentin Henning, and Michael Oliver are... Uh, with my guest today. Denial is a state of mind used to avoid dealing with reality. We Americans have refused to deal with the mathematical reality of systemic uh, and systemic pathology of piling debt on top of debt, much of which is owed to foreigners. After each market crash, neurotic policymakers have applied the same unsuccessful remedies while somehow expecting a different outcome. America has abused its privilege of owning the world's reserve currency. While that has served to fund the military-industrial complex very well, it has not only left the United States in the, as the largest debtor nation in history, but has transferred massive amounts of wealth from the middle class, which, had, which was once a very strong, prosperous, and productive uh, group of people, to the filthy rich elite political and industrial class that are positioned closest to the Federal Reserve printing press. COVID-19 seems to have been the nail in the coffin, however, for the dollar that seems to have destined the world's reserve currency to the dustbin uh, of history while we sit on the, on the precipice of the next Great Depression. As Jim Rickards, uh, James Rickards, who is my guest in the second half of the Today's Show, points out in his new book, um, he... Um, he points out in his new book titled The New Great Depression, there will be winners and there will be losers in this emerging tragedy. We will ask him how we might improve our prospects of joining the winners and 
one way to turn these negatives into positives might very well be to pay attention to the company Dr. Quentin Henning uh, is going to talk to us about. That's Aloral Resources, uh, our most recent sponsor. Quentin will be with me right after the first commercial break to explain why he is so excited about that company's prospects in Bolivia. Now, keep in mind that Quentin Henning's uh, advice, his technical advice, is highly sought after by many mining companies, uh, and he picks and chooses those he thinks have the best chance to do well. And uh, he certainly is very enthusiastic about El Oro Resources, and we'll ask him why uh, when he's with us during the second segment, right after our uh, commercial first commercial break. But right now, I'm really happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me to share his thoughts about what markets might look like in 2021. Thanks for being with me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It's really good to have you with me, and I'm I'm looking at a chart. Uh, I think I passed it along to you. It's sort of a a chart that's that's looking like gold is headed almost straight up, and it looks a little bit like the M1 chart that I've looked at as well. Um, and we, you know, Alistair McLeod has passed that along. Uh, actually, the Federal Reserve uh, in the in December, over a two-week period, as towards Alistair pointed out that the Fed was printing money at a, at a clip of, well, 14% in two weeks. If you annualize that, it comes out to 360% a year. I mean, we're seeing M1 just skyrocket. Um, so I'm wondering, what are your thoughts now on gold and silver, the commodities? I know you've turned bullish before anyone else pretty much, uh, timely so, but nonetheless, a lot of people aren't haven't picked up on the commodities. But just give us your view right now as we, this is the first program that we're having in 2021, what are you seeing in the precious metals and the commodities? Well, gold led the way, uh, as it did in the late 70s. It made a low in 1976 after, after a high in 1975, and it took off till 1980. So it half a year in 76, and then the three following years, solid up. Um, I think we're at the point now where we've gold has advanced over the last well, let's go back just to the secondary low. That was in the summer of 2018. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, two and a half years of up, but it's not been really explosive. I mean, there have been a few periods where you gain 100 or so bucks pretty quick, and then you congest and so forth, but it's been more of an even pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no real liftoff. Uh, example of a liftoff would be what silver did this July. We hit our buy trigger at 1948, which was an annual momentum breakout, not a price breakout. And silver was almost 30 within three weeks. It's 50% gain. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, that's, that's an explosion. Now, I expect at some point, probably soon, we're going to see gold do that. Mm-hmm. For gold, uh, our, our target right now, our working target for this move is that sometime late 2021 or 22, Gold sees something like eight thousand to nine thousand dollars an ounce. Wow! And that's based on quite a few things, but uh, also just a simple logarithmic price chart analysis or ratio scaled price analysis. But and we had a chart on that in our most recent report. Uh, and silver, I think, is going to outpace gold. I think the uh, first off, you got to recognize on silver there's two old highs. One was at forty nine back in nineteen eighty. And one was at 49 in 2011. So silver's really, it's still confined below its old two peaks, whereas gold's mm-hmm. well above the 1980 mm-hmm. peak, which was 850, uh, et cetera. Um, and so I think silver's got a lot of catching up to do, and I think it will. And I would suspect if we're right on gold, silver's going to be a couple hundred dollars an ounce. 
Wow. In excess of 200. Um, and also, not slowly. I, I've said this before, I think what we're into, not just market-wise, but economy-wise, economy social-wise, disorder-wise, is not incremental change, but chaotic, rapid change. There was the chaos theories, we'll, uh, guys, will get their reward here. It, it's going to be a snap, mm-hmm. not, a, not a crawl. Mm-hmm. And so far, gold's been crawling for the last three years, and I think it's about to lift off. In fact, it might even lift off in the next few days. It wouldn't shock me. I don't know if they've priced in what we think is the likely outcome of the election today, which is to say a Democrat Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you get a full Democrat Senate, House, President, I mean, they've got it locked up. They can do whatever they want, basically. Yeah. And that means not only do you have the Fed doing whatever they want, you have uh, the federal government doing whatever it wants. And they're both going to be headed in the same direction. So it's full throttle in terms of uh, money growth, uh, fiscal stimulus, et cetera, et cetera. Um, anyway, so I think that's, that's on the gold silver side. Now, the commodities are echoing, lagged, but still echoing what gold has already said. And they're starting to explode. You don't even need a momentum chart anymore. You can look at a soybean chart, look at a sugar chart, corn, wheat, uh, pretty soon cattle. Uh, one of our favorite sectors, for example, is uh, commodity-related, which is the oil sectors, which were beat off the page over the last few years. I mean, taken yeah, down sure. to like 5% of their value you know, of their prior peaks. They're starting to explode. Like today, for instance, uh, a couple of the oil service sectors and oil exploration sectors that we watch were up 8 and 9%, and they were up huge yesterday. And this is with a down stock market. Yeah, that's you true. Know, down on the year, that is, still. Yeah. Um, so I think the commodities in general, uh, you can throw a dart, <laughs> are, are joining in with gold, which is to say they're going to create the inflation. The Fed wants inflation, they're going to get it, but it ain't going to be 2%. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, if the stock market wobbles and folds over, which we think it likely will, you've got to watch the NASDAQ 100 in that regard, not the S&P, uh, they will not let off the throttle if the stock market starts to cave. Uh, they'll continue, in which case that money flow won't go into the stock market, it will go into the commodity market, which is exactly what happened in the late 70s. The stock market was a wasteland from the mid-70s through 1982, total right. wasteland. Mm-hmm. And, and gold and silver and commodities exploded. Yeah. As a matter of fact, in the 1970s, I know uh, if you looked at the inflation impact on stock prices, it was actually as as, uh, as pernicious as the Great Depression, I, I think. Oh, Somebody yes, pointed yes, that yes, out. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, true, uh, so, so, Michael, let me understand that it might just be investors taking a look and saying, well, these stocks are really overpriced now. And now we have this commodity sector that has never really lifted off. But now mm-hmm. it's really starting to look strong. I can yeah. make a lot of money by selling my stocks and going to commodities. Do you think that's that's what's going on? I the think dynamics? that's already been under. I think that's been underway. I think some large asset managers, including non-gold type, mm-hmm. Ray Dalio types, who yeah. recognize what's going on with the Fed and realize that hey, this is don't fool yourself about your stock price. In fact, he said that mm-hmm. your stock price doesn't mean much because they're they're destroying the money unit that it's measured by. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these guys are favoring gold, mm-hmm. and they're moving uh, big Mike, money. Yeah, Michael, with just about a minute left here yet, uh, Alistair McLeod is talking about the likelihood that eventually 
the interest rates are going to get away from the Fed. Mm-hmm. The Fed mm-hmm. will not be able to to suppress interest rates anymore because people will be losing confidence in the in the currency and they'll just yeah. be running yeah. out of the currency into stuff, into tangibles mm-hmm. that they know have some value. Uh, just maybe you could comment quickly on that uh, as we need I, to go I to think break. That's, uh, we covered that in a report yesterday regarding 10-year T-notes uh, in the U.S., T-note futures. Um, and I would also watch the JGBs, Japanese government bonds, and the German bonds in this regard. They're, they're all 10-year maturities as well. But so far, the, the surge we had in prices and drop in yields, and like the 30-year bond and the 10-year note, has stabilized since March, gone down a bit in price, meaning up in yields, but incremental, really marginal. It's nothing to talk about. Our look at the momentum and price charts of those markets suggests to us that there could be one more spike up in price, mm-hmm. probably associated with a stock market drop. In other words, a flight to safety phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But it's brief. And I suspect that at some time in 2021, we're going to enter a bear market in U.S. government bonds and notes, meaning higher yields. And yes, uh, it will be out of the control of the Fed. Wow. So and I, that's I, when I, agree, think I might... agree with his conclusion with the re- reservation. You might have one more upward price spike before okay. that occurs. All right. Very good. Well, you could really see how that could spook the markets and really get people to start to go for the real true money, gold mm-hmm. and, and silver. So, all right, Michael, we'll have to leave it go at that. Thank you so much for your insights. You, Always Thank very you. important uh, to hear from you. And again, it's OliverMSA.com, folks, to go to to sign up for Michael's letter. All right, folks, well, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because um, Quentin Henning will be with me to talk about El Oro Resources, a very exciting news story that we're introducing to this program. I'll be right back with Quentin Henning. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Benchmark Metals is an advanced gold-silver exploration company that is rapidly advancing its Canadian gold-silver project to a production decision. Benchmark is nearing completion of its largest program to date, with up to 100,000 meters of resource expansion and definition drilling in 2020. The multi-million ounce potential project is expected to have a new mineral resource estimate and PEA study completed in 2021. The company is backed by the Metals Group management team and believes this aggressive program will be complemented by one of the strongest commodity bull markets in decades. Visit BenchmarkMetals.com and subscribe to follow their success. Cassiar Gold Corp. trades on the OTCQB under the symbol CGLCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GLDC. Its flagship asset, the Cassiar Gold Project, is a large advanced stage road-accessible gold property with an NI43-101 compliant resource estimate of 1 million ounces at 1.43 grams per ton gold at the Taurus near-surface bulk tonnage gold deposit and 15 kilometers of high-grade gold prospects. The property hosts several past-producing high-grade gold mines and is in search for the next multi-million ounce gold camp in British Columbia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Henning. Today, he's with me to talk about a new sponsor of this show, El Oro Resources. The company's flagship project is the Isca Isca Silver Rich Polymetallic Project in, uh, in Bolivia. And uh, Quentin is a technical advisor and senior business advisor to the company. Um, and speaking with Quentin, I know that he believes the project not only has the right geology uh, to potentially become very valuable, but it also has large scale. And that's one of the things that Dr. Quentin Henning is known for. He doesn't like to get involved in small projects because uh, sometimes they're more trouble than they're worth. Uh, but he sees something here apparently that uh, that he really likes or he wouldn't have gotten involved with it. El Oro Resources trades in Toronto under the symbol ELO. You can buy it in the U.S. as I have under the symbol ELRF. Uh, about 51.7 million shares, I believe, after they just did a financing, they're raising a Canadian, a little over $6 million in Canadian money. And uh, from what I can see, management institutions own more than half of the shares of this company. So it's a very tight share float. Uh, obviously, I think with some good news, these shares could move fairly rapidly. I saw before the show they were trading at $1.47 U.S. money, uh, giving it a market cap around $76 million. Uh, still a very low market cap if this is a, a, a something large scale uh, in this bull market. So it's uh, something that I'm really watching very carefully. It's something that I want to uh, uh, I want to keep on top of because I think there's a chance to make a lot of money with this company. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Quentin. It's it's really good to have you with me again. Pleasure, Jay. You know, I'd like to ask. I want you to just. I want you to do the talking today, and I want to shut up as much as possible. My wife tells me that's what I need to do more, uh, so I'm I, I'm obedient to her. But uh, you know, we when we think about Bolivia, it's really an area that's a country that we've stayed away from to a great extent. Investors have been uneasy given political situation there. Maybe you could just comment quickly before we get into the nuts and bolts of the project. Um, what about Bolivia? Obviously, you must not be as fearful as you might have been in the past about Bolivia. Well, look, Bolivia has gone through a lot of changes here. Uh, actually, in, in the past year, uh, they've had elections recently. Uh, you look, the, the old regime is out, um, which is good in my view. Uh, there seems to be an openness and appetite for investment, in particular mining, mm-hmm. uh, with the new new president. I think this is a good sign. Uh, I did look when this uh, opportunity first landed in my inbox uh, back in May. Uh, I talked to people I know at Sumitomo. You know, Sumitomo has San Cristobal mine nearby. Oh, yeah. I talked. To, I talked to some others too. You know, but. Uh, Basically, I wanted to get a sense of what Bolivia is like. Look, you know, no no place is perfect by any stretch, but I guess overall, I get the sense the the trajectory, overall trajectory of the political and social uh, environment was improving, uh, and you see this phenomena regularly amongst con- you know, many countries around the world. Is they they go in cycles, you know, they have ups and downs, and but um, boy, when uh, when things improve, you kind of want to be in there, you know, as a first. 
first mover. Uh, you know, look at uh, some of the countries that got into Ecuador, for example. You know, now Ecuador is viewed as a very favorable jurisdiction for mining. I think Bolivia is head, heading in that same direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these countries find out they have to find a way of generating wealth. And when you start with mining, that's a great way to generate wealth for the whole country. It's a it's a starting point. Uh, okay, so talk about ISCA ISCA project uh, there in Bolivia. What uh, what caused you to get interested in this from a geological uh, perspective, Quentin? And and maybe you comment on the on the people that you're working with as well. Yeah, sure. Let's start with the people. Look, uh, Tom Larson uh, heads the company. Tom is a very savvy guy. Uh, also operates really well. Like keeps his companies tight and the financings, like you know what we just did, is uh, minimal dilution. You know, et cetera. This is what investors like. Uh, uh, we've got Bill Pearson, a well-known geologist. Uh, he had a wild success there at Desert Sun, uh, which sold to Yamana. Uh, he, by the way, his comments about Iska Iska is this is the most exciting project he's ever worked on. Uh, I tend to agree with with him about you know the potential. So, uh, you know, uh, anyway, Bill's a really solid guy to work with and. I, I enjoy working with them. Uh, we also, though, have a very important member in Bolivia. Look, we've got Osvaldo Arce. Our, uh, Dr. Arce is basically the guy who wrote the book. I mean, literally wrote the book on these styles of deposits. And they're kind of—they're not unique per se to Bolivia, but they're they're certainly a, a you know a district scale uh, you know geology here uh, that at play. You know, these are. They're basically in, driven by intrusives, uh, call them porphyries if you want, uh, that have come up uh, in a cluster in kind of south-central Bolivia. And, uh, boy, you know, talk about metal endowment. These things really generate world-class deposits. Now, to give you an example, uh, you know, why why Isca Isca? Well, look, uh, Isca Isca is literally due south of uh, Potosi, or some people call it Potosi as well, depending on how you like to pronounce it, but uh, uh, Potosi was the biggest single silver district, period, on Earth, okay? Um, these uh, magmas that come up, they, they generate, tend to generate large disseminated deposits, but they can also have kind of a, almost a, an epithermal overprint, uh, which in places can be very high grade, all right? So these can have kind of the, the low-grade disseminated nature, but also have a higher-grade uh, bonanza style uh, mineralization associated with them. Uh, other look, there's plenty of other examples in in the region. I mean, there's uh, in operating mines. You got uh, San Cristobal, like I mentioned, which is Sumatomo, mm-hmm. uh, which is due west of us. And that deposit was the single largest silver producer on an annual basis uh, for several years here recently. It was producing, I believe, somewhere around 25 to 30 million ounces of silver. Uh, per year, and of course the lead and the zinc was covering most of the cost, so the mm-hmm. silver production is effectively zero dollar, you know, just an incredible uh, deposit. Uh, so, Iski Iski, well look, this is one of these types of systems, there's probably about uh, 15, 20 deposits in this region of this ilk. Um, I would say Iski Iski shares more similarities with Potosi than uh, any other deposit in the region. In other words, it's positioned within the the, the porphyry and near-surface environment is almost identical to, to Potosi. Uh, you see, you know, geologically, we see the overprint of the high-grade mineralization on that porphyry environment, uh, the more disseminated style environment. And then we see 
uh, scale. I mean, the, the thing is absolutely immense. Okay, so we started drilling, uh, I believe, September. And, you know, we've announced a few holes. Uh, good intercepts, Look, you know, to give people a perspective of what we're trying to find. What we're looking for is a deposit that's going to be very large, you know, maybe maybe hundreds of millions of tons or even up, upwards of a billion tons. Uh, and it should have, it's polymetallic, so you kind of have to, you know, look at it, kind of normalize it. And, you know, the best way to think about it is silver equivalency. Mm-hmm. So it might say three to five ounce silver equivalents, okay? So you might have some, you know, you'll have lead, you'll have zinc, maybe even a bit of gold. Uh, there might be other things in there, copper, tin, you know, bismuth, and some other exotic metals like indium. Uh, but, you know, in, in, as a whole, if you kind of mentally convert it to gold, a silver equivalency, you can kind of rationalize the intercepts uh, that we have. And, and so far, the, the results are quite good. Now, those first five holes that we published a few, a few weeks ago were, were just short holes drilled from an underground working. We actually started drilling underground, believe it or not. Uh, the reason was because there's an, an access and adit that goes in. The topography is incredibly steep, so accessing the, the top of the hill uh, is is a challenge. Now, we do have a road up to the top now, and we're able to drill from surface. But the initial holes were drilled from underground, and they targeted a uh, little, little pipe, a little breccia pipe uh, that, that had some pretty good numbers. But we soon recognized that the breccias to the southwest and to the south from there uh, are much, much bigger. Okay, so later in the year, and you can see some of the core photos, I think, published in the most recent uh, update about the project, uh, we drilled some beautiful holes in in the Santa Santa Barbara breccia, but also the the bigger one that's to the south. The the hole went into there. Uh, look, when you start seeing breccia pipes that are hundreds of meters across, like you know 400, 800 meters across, and you're seeing sulfide mineralization, you know, down these breccia pipes, you know, basically like ad nauseum. I mean, these things just go and go and go. You know, you're into a big system. Uh, I'm very excited about the prospects. Uh, you know, do we have? We don't have assays yet for for the uh, holes that were drilled late in the year. But uh, I, you know, I I very much hope to see some good results. Uh, what do we expect? Well, look, I would say if uh, we start seeing intervals of you know 100 plus meter, maybe hundreds of meters in some cases, of three to five ounce silver equivalency. You know that that in my book is a discovery, okay, and and I think that this project uh, you know has that kind of potential. I think we, you know, once we get into the guts of it, I think we will see this thing deliver. That's my hunch, and I think that this could end up being one of the big silver discoveries in, really in this uh, in the past decade or two. So mm-hmm. it's it's exciting. It's a very yeah. exciting story. Yeah. So so we're looking at a bulk mineable silver. Really, is it got any gold with it at all? You know, it does. This one does, uh, which is interesting. Okay, uh, we actually had some very high-grade gold, in fact. Uh, you know, you remember I said there's an overprint. You get this kind of mm-hmm. overprint. Uh, we'll call it epithermal overprint on the system. So we, we do have gold in, in some places. Now, it's not everywhere, but it's uh, it's definitely uh, part of the system. Uh, you know, as we drill more, I think we'll learn more about how the gold is distributed through here. But I would say that uh, gold will contribute significantly to the overall uh, success of the project, but you know, really, again, it's driven by silver plus lead, zinc, uh, but also a few other elements: copper, tin, 
bismuth, indium, things like that. Right, which uh, with just about a minute and a half left here yet, uh, metallurgical issues sometimes with these complex uh, deposits. I mean, it's uh, you know, metallurgically complex when you have all these different kinds of metals mixed together. I'm not too worried because uh, you look at around us, there's plenty of operating mines uh, that, that treat these types of ore bodies, you know, so you get multiple different streams of concentrates, you know, you, you do flotation, you collect, uh, you know, a lead concentrate that might have a lot of silver, you might collect a zinc concentrate, you might collect a pyrite concentrate that yeah. has a bit of the gold, you know, whatever, but it, generally these things are well behaved. Yeah, and if you have a large enough deposit, valuable enough, you can afford the capital uh, to build it and so forth. And I, yeah, I just have yeah. to, I, I mean, this is a company that's, as you said, structured very well. Uh, uh, its capital structure is very strong. It just raised some money. It's, it's well funded, I guess, to take it into next year. Correct. Yes, we're going to be very we're this year. I should say. Yeah, this year we're here. <laughs> yeah, look, the the drill starts up again in about a week. Uh, you know, they they take Christmas break there. They work right up till Christmas, but now they've been off. Uh, but they'll fire up again on the fourteenth, I believe. Uh, the assay labs again. They've taken a break, so we're not going to see assays until uh, you know for a few weeks here. But 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 look, uh, we're going to go full guns here. We're going to we got six point three million, I believe, in the race. Yeah, we're going to absolutely go pell mell here. And uh, you got about fourteen drill holes that are remaining. I mean, how soon do you think you might get the assays from that nineteen hole program that you drilled already? Should be coming shortly. Yeah. Yeah, we'll start to see, uh, you know, the comeback in lots. So we'll see some come back probably within the next two to three weeks. And then, uh, the, but those last holes that we drilled, the, you know, especially the the one in the Santa Barbara pipe from surface, that one just, you know, like, as you can imagine, you're standing on top of this massive pipe and you're drilling more or less straight down the guts of it. Yeah, that was an interesting hole. Well, we'll wait and see for it then. It should be very exciting and very exciting also because I think we're moving into, I mean, Michael Oliver was on the first segment is talking about his target late this year or into next year because he thinks the uh, precious metals markets are on the verge of an explosive rise. Uh, You know, he sees upwards to $200 silver sometime before this bull market is over. I don't want to hype this too much, but I am very excited about the project and I do believe we're in a the bull market of a lifetime in precious metals and silver probably outperforms gold on the way up. So it could be very exciting, Quentin. Thank you so much for being with us and explaining this new story, this new uh, this new company to uh, to our radio show. Thank you so much for being with us. No problem. We do have to go to break now, but when we come back, uh, James Rickards will be with me to talk about his new book. Uh, that is the new Great Depression, and uh, James will have some very important things to say. So I hope you'll stick around. I'll be right back. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. NV Gold Core, trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTC, is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi million ounce gold deposit in North America. With an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2020, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors including Eric Sprott, a globally recognized technical team, technical coverage from industry gold experts, and cash in its treasury. Visit nvgoldcore.com to learn more on this exciting story. 
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me once again, James Rickards. And most of you probably do know James, but in the event that some of you uh, some of you are not familiar with his background, he is an economist, banker, lawyer, capital markets advisor for the Secretary of Defense and Intelligence Community. Uh, and James has been an, an advisor on international economics and financial threats to the Department of Defense and the U.S. intelligence community. He served as a facilitator for the first ever financial war games conducted by the Pentagon. And you may know him from his many books that he's written in the past. He's been on this show in the, in the past to discuss most of them, I think. Currency Wars, The Death of Money, The New Case for Gold, The Road to Ruin. And Jim also publishes a very reasonably priced monthly newsletter that you should consider subscribing to as well. James Rickard's Strategic Intelligence, Making the Complex Simple. Uh, and I believe that you can buy generally buy James's stuff at his website at jamesrickardsproject.com. Uh, uh, and I would also urge you to follow him on Twitter uh, at James G. Rickards, at James G. Rickards. Uh, follow him on Twitter as I do. I certainly try to keep up with him uh, and all that he's uh, thinking, a strategic thinker and one that is very valuable to us. So thank you so much, James, for coming on with us today. Thank you, Jay. It's great to be with you. It's really good to have you again. I just noted, um, I, wanted, I do want to talk to you, of course, today about your new book, The New, uh, the new Great Depression, and you're telling me it's officially out on January 12th, but you can pre-order it, uh, I guess, at, uh, uh, at Amazon and, and other places. So um, I would like to just ask you, um, well, I guess the subtitle was Winners and Losers in a Post-Pandemic World. Right. So, of course, I think most of our listeners want to be on the winning side of what happened. So we hope we can answer that question before we finish today. What should we be doing uh, as best we can to prepare for the difficult times that lie ahead? But this book really focused to a very great extent on on the pandemic. And, you know, James, I think you and I both believe that the country was in some financial difficulty before the pandemic. I think back to September of 2019 with the, uh, uh, you know, with the overnight, um, with the repo crisis, uh, seemed to be like a canary in the coal mine to me. But then along comes this pandemic. It was just really, it seems to be almost a nail in the coffin in a way. Um, I, I want to ask you, you started out, um, you started out, uh, uh, there's a, a little note the, as in the opening pages of the book from uh, Revelation 15, the first verse. It says, and I quote, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for, for in them is filled up uh, the wrath of God. So what messages, uh, what images, what ideas did you want to get across by quoting that, that uh, verse from Scripture? 
Well, apart from the obvious uh, biblical intent, Jay, uh, it sort of makes the point that there's nothing new about plagues or pandemics. Uh-huh. Uh, the book of Revelation was written, no one knows exactly when, but scholars estimate it was around 90 AD. It was the, the last of the, uh, 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 well, it's not, it, it's not a gospel, it's part of the New Testament, but it's the last book of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, they say around 90 AD. Um, but um, but there had been plagues long before that. The there was a plague in Athens um, in the fifth century, in the mid fifth century, which was considered decisive in resolving the Peloponnesian War. That was between mm. Athens and Sparta, and a plague broke out in Athens. Sparta won. That's brought up today in, in regard to China and the U.S. competing with each other. So a little bit of irony there. Um, Emperor Justinian in the uh, mid-6th century A.D. was in the process of reassembling the Roman Empire, reuniting the Western Empire with the Eastern Empire, and had conquered most of what had been lost in the West. But then there was the Justinian Plague, and it was devastating. It lasted a long time, and um, at the time, Constantinople, and that was the end of that. So maybe Mm -hmm. the history of Europe would have been different. So you can go down through the ages, um, but... uh, but plagues have happened, pandemics have happened, some worse than others. But the biggest ones, and I would I would say um, this COVID-19 pandemic is on its way to becoming one of the biggest ones in history, have changed history. It, you, you don't you don't come out the other end. You don't, there is no normal. I make that point. We'll survive. We'll get through it. Life will go on. But it won't be normal. It'll be something different. We'll adapt to it. Um, but that it's of that magnitude. That's the right way to think about it. Yeah, and in, in your introduction, you wrote uh, also another, a quote, I'd like to quote this little line that you wrote. You said, this book is about a virus that caused a global depression. More precisely, it's about how our reaction to a virus caused a global depression. A virus can cause disease and pandemic, yet it cannot directly cause an economic collapse. That's up to us, end of quote. Which caused me, James, as a 73-year-old, to recall my youth, my early days in life, uh, in the 1950s when we had the polio problem. Right. And, uh, you know, it was a horrible thing, and it was highly contagious. I remember they shut down the swimming pools. Um, I can remember, you know, the vaccinations came along. That was a godsend for sure. But, I mean, it was really horrible. People were living in iron lungs. In order to stay alive, they had to be placed in an iron lung and lay lay on their back. And, I mean, I I remember people on crutches and people with, um, you know, walking around. But a lot of people died. Uh, yet we didn't freak out the way we have now. What what do you think has changed? Why do you think that is, that we're freaking? We seem to be so fearful now. We're, and maybe it's the difference between, you know, a 7 or 8-year-old and a 73-year-old. I don't know. But maybe it's the perception more than the reality. Maybe well, we did freak out. Yes, some of it is um, some of it is medical, but I do think a lot of it is culture. I think you you make a very good point, Jay. Uh, you know, the, the the some people call it the nanny state. Um, we're so fearful of everything that, and this this is before the pandemic. The pandemic uh-huh. is a um, greatly amplified example of it. But you know, putting rubber mats on playgrounds. Well, okay, nobody wants their kid to fall off the. Monkey bars. I don't even think they have monkey bars. We used to have them. We swing around like monkeys. But uh, um, yeah, no one wants their kid to fall off the monkey bar and break his arm on an asphalt uh, pavement. But you know, I think people do take it too far, uh, and the pandemic is no different. Um, you know, when I started writing the book, 
Um, by the way, I had this debate with my editor, and my editor is, is great, and my publisher has been very supportive. So we have a good relationship, but we go, uh, we go back and forth on certain things. And when we started this book last April, um, they said, "Well, Jim, we want you to write about the depression, the economy. You're good at that. We 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 know uh, you have you know, good ways of handling that. But you know, don't talk about the pandemic so much because you're not a doctor." And uh-huh. I said two things. I said number one. Um, that's like asking me to write about property damage in New Orleans in 2005 and not mention Hurricane Katrina. So you <laughs> just can't talk about the, the depression as a result of the pandemic. So you can't separate them. You have to talk about them. And by the way, I, I just threw it and I said, look, I went to Johns Hopkins. I'm not intimidated by natural science. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an immunologist. I'm not an epidemiologist. But I did um, find that the science was accessible. I read over 100 peer-reviewed academic papers. These are not newspaper articles and or fringe theories. This was, you know, this was stuff from the Lancet Journal of uh, New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of the American Medical Association, other top-tier uh, publications. So I, j- I jumped into that, had some acquaintance with it. So I found it, uh, uh, you know, I found it accessible. And, you know, when I started, um, I thought, well, this is going to be straightforward. There's going to be a bunch of like fringe theories and crazy theories and stuff like that over here, and there's going to be solid science over there, and I'll uh-huh. stick to the solid science. That turned out not to be true. The fringe theories were there, and I was able to discard them. But when I got into the science, the first thing I discovered is that scientists don't agree with each other. Right. Uh, and so you, I can I can quote papers, and they're in the book. They're all in the end notes, where one scientist will say, you know, you must wear a mask. You're a fool if you go outside without a mask. It's the key to stopping the pandemic, et cetera. I can show you another paper, also by a PhD epidemiologist, who said masks don't work. The virus is so small. It goes right through the fibers. It's all for show. Uh, you know, unless you're sneezing and coughing or you're in an operating room, there's really no point wearing a mask and people don't wear them correctly. Anyway, I, I lean to the latter view. Look, I go to a store, you want a mask, I, I wear a mask. I don't Me I don't too. argue with people about it. And I have no problem with that. But there's there's serious doubt about whether masks do any good. So but I, I present both sides in the book. Um and again, I, I I tease people, I say, Well, the the book's well worth it and I hope you buy it and hope you read it and enjoy it. But the purchase price alone, you you should pay that much just for the end notes, because the end notes are there are hundreds of them. And if you read some, if there's something in the book you disagree with, I say don't argue with me. Go check out the footnote and argue with that scientist because I'm I wasn't making things up. I was pulling it from science. So, but there's a lot of disagreement. Uh, I did come down on the side that lockdowns don't work. Um, that that evidence is very clear. Lockdowns do not work to stop the spread of the virus. They do work to destroy the economy. They're very good at that, um, but they're not doing anything for the virus. And, you know, case in point, we locked down in a severe, I would say extreme way in last March, April, May, 2020. Um, and everyone said, okay, yeah, but by June, July, uh, you know, it'll be over. Uh, we'll, we'll lock it down and we'll kind of starve the virus and all this stuff. And they reopened the economy to some extent. Well, guess what? By October, the caseloads were higher. The fatalities were higher. The virus was spreading more rapidly. That's where we are today, by the way. Mm-hmm. I know the vaccine's out there, but the virus is spreading faster than the vaccine can be administered. So we're losing the race right now. Well, that's what you would have predicted if you know that lockdowns don't work and they don't. So, um, you know, there's a good argument that we would have been better off. Look, some things are fine. Wash your hands, yes. Wear a mask, yes. Social distancing, no one disputes that. Mm -hmm. Avoid, you know, don't have uh, a stadium full of uh, football fans or whatever. Mm -hmm. That, That all makes sense. But locking down bars, restaurants, nail salons, dry cleaners, uh, boutiques, 
know, people look down their noses at that because they're all invested in, you know, Apple and Amazon, Netflix and all that. And I understand how that works. But small and medium-sized businesses are 50% of jobs and 45% of GDP. You cannot whack that sector of the economy without destroying the economy. And that's what we've done. Mm-hmm. We have all the money in the world, but you can't find a good restaurant to go to. Uh, I don't know. I mean, to me, yeah. it's, it's what's, uh, what's, what's, what's it all about? If you get rid of the middle class, which was underway uh, dramatically before COVID-19, right. and now it seems to have accelerated it. And, the, you know, as you say, say the, the mainstream media is telling us to follow the science. Uh, and I dare say, and I know some of the sources that you're talking about, there are credible scientists that disagree with the mainstream uh, the mainstream uh, theme here. So it is very disturbing to me, James, that um, that the media is suppressing a dissent on these things. And it's become so politicized, it seems. This whole thing has become so politicized. It's a very sad day in our history that we're not and, – and the First Amendment, I want to ask you, I mean, are you troubled by – it seems as though an effective – lockdown or shutdown of our First Amendment rights in this country. Uh, I agree with that. I'm very troubled by it. Um, and, and you're right, Jay. When you say, whenever I hear anyone say, um, follow the science, mm-hmm. my first thought is, you're not a scientist. You don't understand science. Because if you really, when people say, well, the question's settled, scientists have settled the question. Right. That's nonsense. I mean, Einstein didn't think Newton had settled it. Uh, Niels Bohr didn't <laughs> think Einstein had settled it. And we're still arguing about it today. Good scientists, good scientists, will be the first ones to say, look, here's my theory, here's my experimental evidence, but, you know, if I'm wrong, tell me. Or if you've got a different experimental result, tell me. And the good ones will, when they're contradicted or something, some flaw turns up, they'll say, they'll go, you know what, I was wrong, I'm going to start again, here we go. That's good science, and those are the scientists you should respect. Whenever anyone says science is settled, they don't know anything about science. You know, it's, uh, we've heard it with uh, different uh, different topics, uh, not just COVID-19, but we're hearing it. And it's just troubling to me that people aren't allowed to speak, uh, people with different ideas than, than is what is politically correct. It's, it's, it's a new America from that perspective. And I judge, uh, you know, from what you're saying and what you're quoting in your book, we, we better get used to it because this is going to be a different landscape no matter uh, when we're out of the pandemic as, right. as well. But well, then what they- about… Yeah, go so ahead. one of the points I make in the in the book, I say the virus is not a Republican or a Democrat. The virus just wants to kill you, yeah. and that's really all you need to know. So you can politicize it if you want to, but that's not helping um, deal with the pandemic. So let's talk about the economy a little bit. I um, another quote, actually, this is Mohammed El Arian that you put in your book. Only a few months into the tragic COVID nineteen shock. There are already concerns that Wall Street is once again flourishing while Main Street is suffering. If current asset prices fail to be validated by a decisive economic recovery, the longer-term well-being, not just of the economy and markets, but of institutions and society is as well, will be at risk, end of quote. So uh, how do you think that reconciliation will take place? There has to be a reconciliation somewhere along. Will we see an equity market meltdown? that brings uh, these very wealthy people down? Or will we actually see a better answer would be, of course, some somehow growth again in the economy so that the uh, the real economy catches up with these inflated market prices? Well, it, it's one or the other. And I, I do talk about that specifically in Chapter 6 of the book. And um, Muhammad al-Aran is an interesting figure because, <coughs> pardon me, um, 
He's a real honest-to-goodness power lead. I mean, he's he's a Davos. He's talking to the central mm-hmm. bankers, et cetera. Yes. So he, he's the real deal. But I also find him very sensible and down-to-earth. And uh-huh. most of the elites are not. So he's one I actually think is worth uh, worth listening to. Mm-hmm. But what, what this is, Jay, what you're pointing to in Chapter 6, I talk about the difference between perception and reality. Reality, you should be able to figure out through math or science or observation or anecdotal evidence, etc. Perception is just what people think, whether they're right or wrong. Well, whenever that gap opens up between perception and reality, reality always wins, but not right away. It can take a while for that gap to close. But meanwhile, if you can identify it, and I have done that in chapter six, <clears throat> pardon me, you can make a lot of money because if you, in effect, buy the reality and wait for the perception to converge, own own the gap, own the gap between perception and reality, that's an enormous profit potential. Now, timing matters. Uh, it can get worse before it gets better. you got to be careful about that. And, um, you know, again, watch the, you know, my hedge fund days, the mark-to-market, you got to keep an eye on that. But um, it will come down to earth now. So what's the reality? The reality is what we talked about before. You know, people look down their nose at small businesses. They go, well, you're not Apple. You're not Netflix. You're not Microsoft. You're just a, you know, a, a, a restaurant or a bar. Um, but apart from the condescension, condescension built into that, again, as I say, small businesses are 50% of the economy. So, um, so you lock it down, you've destroyed your economy. And that's what we're doing. We're doing it again, by the way. I expect a second recession in the first quarter, uh, beginning in the first quarter of 2021, right now, in other words. This will be the first back-to-back recession since 1980-81. We, got, we went into recession in February 2020. That's that's my view, but it's also what the National Bureau of Economic Research said. They're the referees. Um, we were out of it by the third quarter because growth was positive 33% approximately in the third quarter. So the first and second quarter were your recession. We're out of it. We're going back into a recession right now because the virus is out of control and we're locking down again, even though, um, even though lockdowns don't work. Now, as far as the perception is concerned, everyone's like, yeah, but you know, the stock market dropped a little over 30% in from late February to late March. I think March 23rd was the bottom, but it came back 70%. Uh, stock market indices are at an all-time high. My 401k is back, et cetera. Well, that's all true, but understand what the stock market is. It's completely divorced from economic reality, number one. Number two, you can talk about the S&P 500, but it's really the S&P 7. Uh, you got, you know, we know who they are. It's, it's Apple, Microsoft, Netflix, Facebook, Google, or Alphabet, um, and uh, uh, um, uh, Tesla is the new entry. They mm-hmm. just they just do, do Tesla in, in the index as well. So those seven stocks are for because the S and P uh, 500 is a cap weighted index, meaning your influence on the index based is based on your market capitalization. Mm-hmm. Well, those seven stocks are 40 percent of the total capitalization of the S&P 500. So whatever they do, that's what the index does. And then uh, people are investing passively, so they just say to their, you know, their broker, you know, Vanguard, Fidelity, whoever it is, get me an index fund. Okay, well, if you put money in an index fund and that bids up the price, guess what? More people put money in the index fund and it bids up the price more. And so you get into this feedback loop or recursive function and, and then ETFs are no better because they're just little mini indices. So between passive investing, index funds, ETFs, uh, and this concentration and again, seven names, what about the other, uh, what about the S&P 493? 
What about the other 493 stocks that are not in the big seven? Mm-hmm. Um, look at look, break them out. You can do it. It's not hard to do. They're flat to down. The yeah. other is some individual cases that vary, but that that overall part of the index isn't doing anything. Right. So you so so the stock market is divorced from reality. The seven companies I mentioned are very far removed. They're, they're the least affected by the pandemic. I mean, Netflix is doing great because everyone's staying home watching Netflix. Um, Amazon's doing great because everyone's afraid to go to the store, um, you know, and so forth. So Best Buy, I, I was in Best Buy recently. I bought a new TV set, and I just said to the salesman, I like to chat people up, I said, How, how's business? He goes, better than ever. He said, because nobody come, nobody can go out, so they're all in here buying TVs and stereos. Uh, <laughs> so uh, and I said, yeah, that, that makes sense. So you do have these sectors that are doing well, but half the economy is being crushed. So, uh, and, you know, and, and they've had people like Larry Kudlow running around in the spring talking about pent up demand, which yeah. is nonsense. I mean, I, ever, as soon as I heard that, I thought of green shoots. Remember green shoots yes, in 2009? Yes. Yep. Yeah, there, were, there was brown, like brown weeds, right. But um, so, pent up demand, so what does that mean? So, my, like my wife and I like to go out to dinner on a Friday night. So, during the first quarantine or lockdown from, you know, March, April, May of 2020, we didn't go out to dinner. We just kind of hung out and ate at home. So, by June, things had reopened, some things, and we went out to dinner. Well, I didn't order 10 dinners. I ordered one, like, like I usually yeah. do. In yeah. other words, the nine dinners I skipped in the previous two months, that, that was permanently lost. There's no pent-up demand there. Those dinners aren't coming back. That's a permanent loss. And when you close a restaurant, let's say you have 20 you know, waiters, waitresses, and bartenders, and you reopen, maybe, um, you don't bring back all 20. You bring back 10 because your capacity is reduced to 50% okay. at most, and people aren't going out to dinner anyway. Uh, that's if you were lucky to reopen. But the other thing that's being missed is that everyone says, oh, they shut down, but they'll reopen, pan up demand, all this stuff, which is nonsense. They're not reopening. The bankruptcies are sky high. Um, and by the way, this is not speculation, Jay. There's good data on this. You can go to oh, Yelp. absolutely. Absolutely. Y- y- Yelp, like if I close my business, I take my page off of Yelp. Well, they, yeah. they've identified yeah. you know, 900,000 businesses that have shut down. All right, Jim, we're just about out of time already, and I just I want to ask you, how you mentioned the third quarter was positive. We got right. out of the recession, but that was done by a lot of deficit spending, huge amounts of deficit spending. Right. And it, it seems to me, I'm wondering, where is the financing going to come from? It's going to come from the printing press, is it not? Alistair McLeod pointed out that it, in two weeks in December, there's 14% growth in M1. A lot of that is shifting from M2 to M1, and the Fed is now starting to report it differently, apparently. But the point is that um, I, do you see any way that this can be financed? Foreign money coming in? Where's How are we going to finance this? And is there any way other than just printing money to finance it? Uh, the financing part is easy. The, the The bigger question is, can you get growth out of it? No, is the Fed keeps saying zero interest rates and money printing is stimulus? Well, no, it's zero interest rates and money printing. You can print money, and they do, and they have three trillion dollars worth since the um, pandemic. But there's no stimulus in it, uh, and that's because money printing has nothing to do with inflation. Mm-hmm. Money does not cause inflation. Velocity causes inflation. That's the turnover of money. So print all the money you want. And you know, my friend Stephanie Kelton, she's the big brain of modern monetary theory. And by the way, she's a very big voice in the Biden administration because she was financial uh, advisor to uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, she says, yeah, you went from $4 trillion to $7 trillion, You can go to $10 trillion. Well, legally you can, and they might, but it won't work because you print the money. So how do you print the money? Well, the Fed buys 
treasury notes from the primary dealers and the dealers send the notes in the fed six them on the balance sheet and the dealer and the fed pays you in money in your bank account what are the banks what do the banks do with the money they give it back to the fed in the form of excess reserves yeah. so it's it's not being there's no lending there's no spending there's no turnover there's no velocity and that means no stimulus and the real economy is basically dead. Now, I should mention that we're, we're, we're out of time, Jim, but I, ju- I should mention that you do have some optimistic notes at the end. You, you, you noted that uh, FDR, we had a very divisive country uh, before World War II, but FDR, who was a socialist president, came together and worked with Henry Ford. So there are some, some notes of hope in your book, uh, but I think it's a very realistic book, and I really hope people go out and, and buy a copy of it because I think it's, it's very well worthwhile. People need to be ready for what's coming because I think we're going to be looking at some very difficult times ahead. I want to thank you so much, James, for being with us. Always a pleasure to have you and always be glad to have you back anytime you have the time to be with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, uh, Chen Lin, Brent Cook, Eric Coffin, Gwen Preston, all newsletter writers, analysts will be picking their top stocks for this year. Peter Ball of NV Gold will be with me as well. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. 